Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. Have you always dreamed about becoming a best-selling author? Well, I can make that dream come true for you if you're interested in writing a chapter for my next compilation book, Transforming Pain into Purpose, Triumphant Tales of Empowerment. If you're interested in learning more about writing and contributing to this compilation book, I'll put my contact info in the show notes. Please feel free to send me a DM on Facebook, or you can reach out to me through Instagram to learn more about this incredible opportunity to become an international best-selling author. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Cheryl Ilove. She is an author, a speaker, a physical therapist, a dancer, and I love this, a martial artist, but when I say martial artist, I mean a ninja that is such an incredible, <laughs> I just, I love that. Welcome, Cheryl. I'm so happy to have you here. We've had a lot of um, issues, we'll say, getting things sorted out and finally being able, to, being able to interview you feels amazing. I'm so happy to have you here. So thank you, Cheryl, for being here and thank you for your patience. Oh, no, thank you for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate it. And yeah, we have had some technical issues, but <laughs> You know, there's a lot to be said for patience, perseverance, and just, you know, never giving up, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so as I mentioned, you are all of those things, but you're a ninja. Like, I, I'm so <laughs> excited to say that I cannot believe I'm interviewing a fucking ninja. This is so <laughs> badass and cool. I love it. Uh, you wear a hell of a lot of hats, Cheryl, and albeit, of course, you don't wear them all at the same time, but... How important is prioritization and organization to you? And how do you stay on top of things? Wow, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I would have to say it depends on the day. But yes, I do wear a lot of hats. I play a lot of different roles. Um, but the way I stay on top of things is to, to, like you said, just stay organized as best I can. And for me, that means checking my calendar every single morning when I wake up, <laughs> as well as every single evening before I go to bed, just to, so I know what's on the calendar for the next day and the next day and the next day. So I know where to fo focus my energy and my attention. Right. So speaking of mornings, you mentioned mornings. So checking your calendar in the morning. So what does your morning routine consist of? Well, uh, when I, I actually get up painfully early, I don't know why I do that. Um, <laughs> but I'm usually up by 5.30 or 5.45. Today, I was lazy and slept until about six. So the first thing I do is I stumble into the kitchen, have my coffee, you know, say hello to my husband, play with my dogs for a few minutes. And then I check my calendar and I know, okay, <laughs> this is where I've got to be or this is what I've got to do. And on some mornings, it's like I hit the, you know, just hit the ground running. And other mornings, I have the opportunity to just relax and just sit for in, in quiet for myself and mm -hmm. pick up my knitting needles, do a little bit of knitting, um, maybe a little bit of writing before I head out the door. So what drives, motivates and inspires you to keep going and keep pushing and excelling at all that you do, Cheryl? That is another really good question. And 
I'm not really sure what it is, but if I had to narrow it down, I would say it is my incomparable stubbornness. <laughs> I, and I, I inherited that from both parents, um, but you know, both of them were incredibly stubborn. Um, but I think I get that uh, sense of persistence and never giving up actually from my father. So he was an amazing man who went through a lot of trials and tribulations in his life. And it's also sometimes I'll look at what is frustrating me or what's keeping me back as an opportunity. It's actually like a puzzle. Yeah. And trying to figure out um, the just the way around it so I can come to the end and succeed. I love it. So I want to dive right into the ninja stuff now. I'm so excited to talk about this stuff. First of all, let's start with how long have you been a ninja? Well, you know, I started my training at the tender young age of 47. <laughs> but at that point, I did not consider myself a ninja. And I thought even uh, the guys that were calling themselves ninjas, including my sensei, I would always roll my eyes and say, oh, my God, how old are we anyway? You know, this is so <laughs> stupid, calling yourself a ninja. But really, the art that I study is called Ninpo Taijutsu, okay. the art of the ninja. Okay. So it is based on the ninja and the samurai. So that's where right. that comes from. And so what inspired you to get into martial arts in the first place? I know with a lot of people, there's some event or occurrence that leads up to jumping into martial arts, like um, bullying or, or something along those lines. Did this journey of becoming a ninja begin or come to be through some of your own personal journey struggles? Absolutely. It came as a result of a traumatic experience um, at the age of 44. Okay. And as the universe works or, you know, divine intervention or whatever, or whomever you'd like to call it. Uh, it was just a few months after that event happened that I met a guy who happened to be an acupuncturist and he was referred uh, to me by one of my clients who is very picky herself. So I figured, okay, if she likes this guy, he's got to be okay. And, uh, you know, so I had some trepidation just because, you know, like I said, I had had that traumatic event and we can go into that if you like. Um, but, you know, he seemed like a nice guy and, you know, okay, everything was on the up and up. So I'm lying on his table and the first time he started putting needles in my legs, which as you said, I'm a dancer, he got a very far away look on his face <laughs> and yeah. he said, you know, with your legs and my coaching, I could teach you how to kill with these things. <laughs> Most men, when they hear that, they're like, pick up line. Yes, pick up line. exactly. exactly. Uh -huh. um, I didn't take it that way. I thought, okay, this guy's out of his freaking mind. He's, <laughs> he's batshit crazy. I'm getting out of here. Where's my purse? But then I realized I was literally pinned to the table. <laughs> he had a captive audience unless yes. I wanted to grab my purse and try running out the door with needles sticking out all over me. I was kind of stuck there, if you'll pardon the pun. Yeah. So, you know, he went on and on about his art and his martial art. And he basically had his clinic was in like a duplex. So he his clinic was on one side of the building and right right next to it was his martial arts school. So okay. he basically was a sensei and he did teach martial arts. And of course, I said, no, I was never going to take martial arts. It was never going to happen. I'm a dancer. I'm a fussy girl. 
I like tutus and toe shoes, Pilates and pedicures, and there is no way I'm going to do something like martial arts. It was just never in my DNA. It was never on my radar. And so I just kept saying no. And he kept going. He kept persisting, though. Right. And isn't that amazing? I think I'm incomparably stubborn, but I finally met somebody who was more stubborn than I was. And basically what happened is about a year later after I had met him, um, you know, I had stuffed the trauma deep down inside because Mm -hmm. after it happened, when I tried to get help and I tried to report it, the response that I would get by everybody I approached was, no, that can't happen. You must be making it up. There must be some deep other trauma deep in your past. It was so bad, Brad, that, you know, I finally, even the people who I'm the the closest to me, my very best friend. Didn't believe you? She did not believe me. Mm -mm. And she kept saying, oh, Cheryl, that cannot happen. You know, you're making it up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, my God, we had been best friends for years and years. And then I was like, okay, so the next line of defense is go to my husband. And when I tried to tell him, he put his hands over his ears and he said, this is girl talk. You need to talk to Kathleen. You know, it's girl stuff, girl stuff. And it's like, okay, so then I tried again, got the same reaction. And of course, as I was going through this, it was really obvious there was something wrong with me. I had lost a tremendous amount of weight. Mm. Um, I walked around looking like a deer in the headlights. And even my friends in ballet class noticed the weight loss, which a lot of times it's like, oh, look at you. You're getting skinny in ballet. That's a really a big thing. But it got to the point that all of the recovering anorexics would follow me around the studio trying to counsel me on my problem. Oh, God, it was so bad. And it's like, no, I told you I had a really, you know, bad experience. And of course, they didn't want to hear it. Yeah. So finally, I just stuffed it deep down inside of me. I put a big ass smile on my face and went about my life pretending that everything was fine. But obviously, it wasn't. And it was about a year later that it just came like spewing out of me, which trauma frequently does, as you know. And I finally went to Mark, my acupuncturist. I hadn't been seeing him for a while because I hadn't really been doing anything. I thought nothing was worth it. Um, I didn't even want, you know, treatment for acupuncture, nothing. Right. So when I, I just thought, you know, I really think that he would listen and I think that he would believe me. I just intuitively knew. So I did go back to him. I told him what happened and, you know, he said, well, I knew there was something but I knew I didn't know what it was. And so he started to tell me that, you know, we'll treat it with acupuncture, Chinese herbs. And then he said the sweetest thing to me, Brad. It was, he just looked and he said, you know, it's no secret that you're one of my favorite people. <laughs> and the fact that somebody did this to me or did this to you makes me want to go find him and hurt him. <laughs> but it must have felt incredible for you to finally yeah. get some validation and finally be seen and heard. It was, it was, I almost didn't know how to process it because yeah. it had been so long that I was, you know, getting the, the patent slapping across the face that, yeah. you know, it was like, finally somebody listened. And then he said, I want to hurt him so bad that he never gets back up again. And that's when I almost started to cry because it's like, not only did someone listen to me, somebody wanted to 
protect my honor, you know, in yeah. some some way. So at that point, though, his campaign to get me on the mat went into high gear. I'm sure. <laughs> but I kept saying no. Wow. Think about it. I didn't understand how yeah. hanging around in a smelly dojo <laughs> with a bunch of sweaty men, you know, kicking and, and punching and screaming was going to make me feel any better. But Mark kept saying, you know, there is an incredible healing power in the martial arts. And I know this can help you. He was so convinced. And you can tell, you know, some people would say to me, um, oh, he must have seen that warrior spirit inside of you. He must have known that you would become a ninja. And I just laugh. I mean, the first time somebody said that to me, I laughed so hard, I almost peed my pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, that's not the case. He just felt sorry for me. You know, he had that connection and that empathy, and he knew, or he thought he knew, that he mm -hmm. had a means for me to be able to, to heal. So he right. never gave up, bless his heart. <laughs> but it wasn't a matter of him feeling sorry for you. He just wanted to help you. He did. He really, really wanted to help me. And so how have these experiences with what you went through and then getting connected with Mark and him helping you, how have these experiences helped shape the Cheryl you are today, both personally and professionally, do you think? Personally, I think it has really brought me back to who I really am. Mm-hmm. It has not only given me my power back, it gave me my voice back. You know, it made me even snarkier than I've ever been. <laughs> and in some ways, I can really feel that little four-year-old girl that's still deep down inside of me coming out and living the life that she really wanted and not the one that she was expected to have. It gave um, me really strong boundaries and the yeah. ability to say no. I love it. Now, did your best friend finally end up believing you? No, I ended up breaking up with her. Wow. And it was a beautiful thing. And it's really interesting, Brad, because this is, you know, this is part of who I'm not anymore of being a little bit of a doormat because right. we had a wonderful relationship. We met when I was in my early 20s. She was just like three years older than me. And we met in a ballet class. Right. And became very, very close friends. And it was surprising. And it used to shock people that we were such good friends because, you know, I call her Kate, was mm -hmm. very um, highly intelligent, very well educated, was working on her PhD. And she was very shy and quiet. And then there was me. Yeah. You know, very loquacious, bouncing off the wall, smart enough to get by and, you know, very outgoing and a whole lot of fun. But for some reason, we got along famously and were very, very close, glued to the hip for many years, told each other um, our deepest secrets. You know, we we know where all the bodies are buried, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and but as the years went by, she just got more and more negative and darker and to the point where it was like. I can't stand being around her. And yet, you know, it was just such a dysfunctional relationship, which, you know, friendships should not be that way. No. And especially after the, the, the trauma and what I went through, it was like, I got to break up with her. But how yeah. do you tell somebody that you've been best and dearest friends with, so to speak, for 30 years right. that you haven't liked them for the past 15? Holy shit. And you've been trying to figure out how to break up with them for the past 10. 
Yeah. So it complicates things because, of course, we would spend every holiday together, every stupid birthday together. And the holidays got into like Memorial Day, Fourth of July, you know, Grandparents Day, you know, Groundhog Day. It was just, oh, and she was so insufferable to be around, but her husband was even worse. And I mean, it was just so awful. But of course, I would see her several times a week in ballet class. Right. So my strategy to try and break up with her was probably not very courageous. Um, It was a little chicken shit, but it worked, is I just started to pull away. Yeah. I, I changed my dance schedule. You know, I stopped returning phone calls. I just was pulling away. And when you, you know, with a person like that, the more you pull away and she could sense it, the more she tried to all oh, dig in and hang on. Yeah. But I'm here to tell you that it worked. And um, yeah. <laughs> how did your, how did your husband feel about hanging around? Cause you guys would obviously spend time together as couples too. How did your husband feel about being around her husband if he was more negative than her it got to the point where you know my husband is such a sweet man he really is but he couldn't stand it it got (laughs) to the point that both of us were looking at each other going how did this get so out of hand and we've got to change something so um well you're from toronto you're canadian so you know um you celebrate your thanksgiving in october which as my friend who was um canadian would say the proper time. Oh, <laughs> and so I always got Thanksgiving at, you know, I was the one that had to host Thanksgiving. So it started when she was single and I didn't want her to be by herself. It's like, well, come over and have, you know, Thanksgiving dinner with me and my husband. And then she ended up getting married. And then she was inviting all of her friends over to my house for Thanksgiving oh. dinner. Wow. So after 20 years of this, and, you know, my husband and I would fight for three days before Thanksgiving because trying to clean up, get everything ready and blah, blah, blah. Um, And then we would fight for three days afterwards, trying to, again, clean up and get over it. It was just so insufferable. So finally, and this is part of my ninja training, so I'm tying it into this. You know, we learn how to get away or to escape an attack just by not being there. Right. If you're not in the way, you can't get hurt, right? So I said to my husband, I said, you know, what we're going to do this year is we're going to go to Cabo San Lucas for Thanksgiving. And he's like, I don't want to be there for Thanksgiving. And I'm like, okay, well, just, you know, sit with this for a minute. I said, I will tell her that we're going to be gone and we're going to have our Thanksgiving. We're going to have Maui, Maui, Mahi, Mahi on the beach. Yeah. And that we're going to come home after Thanksgiving. I said, but in reality... We will come home the day before (laughs) and then we will have our Thanksgiving. We'll have a nice vacation. We'll have our Thanksgiving. We will be alone. And everybody wins. Well, you guys, most importantly. (laughs) Well, yeah, most importantly, it was us. So, you know, she was like, oh, okay. Well, our, you know, our wedding anniversary is right around Thanksgiving. So, uh, you know, I said, well, we're just going to be by ourselves and celebrate our anniversary. So she understood, but she was dreadfully disappointed. And then Christmas was coming. And as I told you before, my husband and I usually go to this lovely hotel downtown Denver and have champagne brunch. Yeah. And they used to come along with us. Okay. After her mother passed away, it was like, oh, good. Now we can do Christmas with you. And it's like, oh, my God. Yet another one. (laughs) You know, what have I done to deserve this in my life? So then she had, and we had already made reservations. And she said, oh, so, you know, did, did we make reservations for the Brown Palace? And I said, no, we're not going to go. We're going someplace else. 
<laughs> and she says, well, you don't want to do Christmas? And I said, no. And she was like shocked. So that was yeah. the way we started pulling back. And I tell you, Brad, once we realized that that I had finally, you know, broken that chain that was yeah. holding me down and binding me, it was like somebody took a 50 pound weight off at the top of my head. I'm sure. No doubt. So what would you say then, Cheryl, was the biggest or most valuable takeaway or lesson for you as a result of what you learned through your experiences? You know, you have to put yourself first. Mm -hmm. And I know the way I was raised and grew up, you had to put everybody else first, everybody else's needs. You had to look out for everybody else before you. Don't be selfish. And that's one of the biggest lies I think that we were ever told or that I was told as a child or growing up. And I think that that philosophy was actually... Um, Re, you know, reinforced in my experience as a medical personnel. You know, I was a respiratory therapist for 17 years and then a physical therapist taking care of people. Everybody else's needs came first. And when I realized, nope, I'm number one. If I don't take care of myself, nobody else will. It's my responsibility. And that was yeah. another eye-opening experience. Yeah, I think a lot of people are told that it's selfish to put yourself first and all of that crap that's just bullshit conditioning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Along with self-care. It's like, no, no, no. Self-care is selfish as well. And that's just so stupid. Yeah. It, it's counterintuitive. Yeah. Like, that makes no sense. Well, You and have to. You have to. It's a terrible way to go through life if you don't. And it really impacts your health physically and mentally in a negative yeah. way. Yeah, for sure. So what is the most exciting or coolest part about being a ninja? I mean, it must feel pretty damn cool <laughs> to be able to say, I'm a fucking ninja. Like <laughs> <laughs> well, it usually isn't a conversation starter and I wouldn't start out that no. way. And I was very hesitant about even, even admitting that I was studying martial arts to people who didn't know me because Mark was very, um, you know, he was, he was like, you know, didn't want, he says, don't tell people that you do this because there's always going to be some jackass who's yeah. going to want to challenge you and blah, oh, blah, blah. Geez. Yeah. I mean, and he was very protective of me for probably the first several years that I was training and still I was, mm -hmm. until I started climbing up the ranks. But then finally it was like, you know, okay, this is part of my story. It's part of who I am. And I mean, it's a really fun story. You know, yeah. the reason isn't fun, but it's a no. fun story. And I really would... I want to encourage other people and inspire other people to find that inner strength and that warrior within you that I believe the warrior spirit is in each and every single one of us. I love it. Now, something that I'm anxious to discuss with you, because I think this is very important to talk about for women. Yes, but I think it also applies across the board for both men and women. And it's the fact that as you mentioned earlier on, you became a ninja in your later years, as well as a dancer. Mm -hmm. Now, societal conditioning, familial conditioning, the media, all of these things would have us believing that certain things must be done by a certain time in life and certain age. And I think the narrative's shifting. And obviously, that narrative doesn't apply to you, which I am so inspired by this, by what you did and how you got started and where you started doing this at that point in your life. Mm -hmm. Now, what is one piece of advice or wisdom you would like to share with the women out there listening to your interview about going after you what you want and accomplishing it and how age ties into that? 
Well, the first thing I would say is don't listen to anybody else, especially if they're saying, no, you can't do it because you're too old. You are never too old to try something new. Society, as you said, society, the uh, media, family members, you know, even and I'm using air quotes here, friends yeah. who are looking out <laughs> yeah. for you, you know, we're not, that works, yeah. um, will try and stop you because it might be because they don't want you to get hurt. They mm-hmm. don't want you to fail. But you know what? That is your choice and your decision. And there is no such thing as failure, just opportunities to learn. Yeah. And it's almost like, have you ever heard the story about like the crabs in the bucket? Yes. Right. There are a lot of people who don't want you to succeed. They want you to stay in that comfort zone, in that little bucket. And if you get out of that bucket and you try something new or different, there's a certain amount of envy, jealousy, and it's more comforting to know that we're all in this little bucket together. We're all going to go through menopause and we're all going (laughs) to gain weight and we're all going to get fat and, you know, we're all just going to sit around and and, you know, just talk about the good old days or sit in the rocking chairs, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be that you get to create whatever you want out of your life. And nobody has the right to try and stop you or to tell you that you can't do it. And if they do tell you, you can't do it, you just prove them how wrong they really are. I love it. Now, I want to keep with this line of discussion for a minute here and ask, did you face a lot of adversity or any adversity <laughs> in terms of all of this, aside from your friend? Um, that had to deal with any narrow-minded bullshit from people in relation to the fact that you're doing this later in life? And if so, how did you deal with it? What was your approach? Well, um, most of the people who were um, invalidating my experience as, you know, the trauma, yeah. those were the ones that were like, well, you can't do martial arts. You're too old to get mar- to do martial arts. You're going to get hurt. Don't do martial arts and it's not good for you and blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling you, martial arts was the best thing I've ever done for myself. It is the healthiest thing that you can do, um, I, I think, in the world. And for those of you who are listening, especially you women out there, and thinking, well, I don't want to go to a smelly dojo and have a <laughs> bunch of sweaty men smack me around. And I fully understand that. I, I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you might want to give it a try anyway and just find out how much fun it really is. If you don't want to do that, you can always always try like a softer style, like Tai Chi, something mm-hmm. like that. There are other styles that can fit, um, you know, your needs. So yeah. don't give up because you don't want to hang out with um, sweaty men. <laughs> but Adam, I'm sorry, hanging out with sweaty men is really a good time. <laughs> now, I also, I want to celebrate this because I think it's pretty incredible. You were your teacher's first female black belt. That is one hell of an accomplishment and feather in your cap. You should be incredibly proud of that. And I'm curious because of course, let's be honest, martial arts are pretty much a male dominated Mm. area. So how was this accomplishment received by the men in the dojo? And overall, how did they treat you when you were there training? Well, let's go back to the very beginning then when I first said, okay, I will take a few classes because um, Mark basically wore me out. I mean, he kept (laughs) badgering me to take classes and, you know, I was like, I I just, I don't, I don't understand how this is going to help. And finally it was like, okay, I will take a few classes just to get a few self-defense techniques and to prove to you how much I'm going to hate it (laughs) and then I'll quit. 
Right. And then, of course, the rest is history. Ten years later, I did become his first female black belt. When I first walked into the dojo, I was shocked. Well, everything shocked me back in those days. <laughs> but Mark had assured me I would not be the only woman in class. And that was another thing I was really terrified. I'm like, I'm going to be so far out of my comfort zone that, you know, I just didn't want to be the only woman there. I was afraid. I was afraid I would get hurt. I was afraid I'm going to look like an idiot. And I did, but that was okay. Right. Um, but when I got there, there were no women, not number one. Mark said there'd be plenty of women there. And not only was I the only woman in class, I was the only woman within like a three mile radius. Oh, and it's like, oh my God, you know, what am I going to do now? And then the it all started, the class started with like all these rolls and break falls and, and acrobatics and, and people screaming. And I'm like, oh God, where's the door? I got to get out of here. I mean, it was just, I had just come from ballet class, you know, I was like, I still had my hair in a bun, but the guys were so warm. They were so welcoming. And I'm so fortunate that that is a dojo that really, they love women. They absolutely, right. there were, as the years went on, and even at the beginning, um, there was a little bit of machoism, but most of the time, the guys wanted to help me and show me things and, you know, teach me. And so it was actually a very supportive environment. And I do give Mark the credit for that. And, you know, that kind of atmosphere that he created in the dojo, very, very friendly. And it's playful, too, which was really nice. So it's not real, you know, yeah. martial. It's, it's definitely an art and an art form. And it's very, very playful and a whole lot of fun. And as I was starting to, you know, the guys really didn't take me very seriously at first, which I don't blame them because I didn't take myself very seriously either. Right. But as I started, you know, learning things about, it took about three months and one of the guys badgered me to test for my yellow belt. Cause my goal was never to test. I was never, as you know, looking for a black belt. My God, yeah. I didn't want a yellow belt. I didn't even want the white belt, but it came with the uniform. Right. So just to shut him up, he wouldn't, he, he was like a dog with a bone. So this is, again, how stubborn I am. I finally was like, okay, just to shut you up, I'll, I'll test for my yellow belt. Yeah. And then three months later, he started badgering me to test for my second degree yellow belt. And I'm like, God, why don't you just shut up and mind your own business? But I tested for my yellow with black stripe. And then three months later, I thought, you know what? I think I'm ready to test for my orange belt. Awesome. And it was my idea and nobody else's. Now, at that time, the guys are really starting to take me seriously. Yeah. And they would walk by me every now and again, and they would whisper, Kunichi. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that is. It sounds dirty. <laughs> <laughs> are you coming on to me? What's, what's going on here? Yeah, yeah. And what they were calling me was Kunichi, which is the Japanese term for female warrior. Uh, okay. And Q is the Japanese for nine, which nine is the most powerful number. Uh, and each is one. So it was nine plus one because the female warrior was the most powerful and the most greatly feared in, you know, Japanese legend and, and Japanese history. Right. Because they could infiltrate, because they were attractive, they were feminine, they were no threat because they were women. So they made the perfect spies and they could get behind enemy lines and cause incredible havoc. So when they told me this, I'm going, well, that's nice to know, but that's not me. But from that moment on, they started training me at a higher level 
Mark, my sensei, was expecting more of me at a higher level. And it wasn't until I was probably at the level of brown belt that one of the guys, another black belt that I loved and used to train with a lot, we were doing something, we were training just the two of us. And all of a sudden he stopped and he looked at me and he said, oh my God, you're the one. And I said, the one for what? (laughs) And he said, you're the one, you're going to be Mark's first female black belt. We've been waiting for years. And I just looked at him and I said, no, (laughs) no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And it took another three years and I became Mark's first female black belt. How incredible that (laughs) must have felt for you that day when you received your black belt. You know, I I don't remember (laughs) because it was my first entry level. It was really not black. It was the entry level. They lovingly referred to that as the Oreo belt, which it's a black belt with a white stripe in the, in the center. And it is just, it's a comprehensive test, meaning that they test you on everything that you've learned from the first moment you stepped into the dojo as a brand new white belt. Wow. The test was going to be three and a half hours long. And I knew that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and of course I prepared like you would not believe. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I was tested by three black belt instructors. Mm -hmm. And of course I passed. Yeah. And I was so (laughs) exhausted. (laughs) Oh, and another minor detail. By that time, there was another woman in the dojo. Okay. Actually, we had met when she was a white belt. And she was very, very, oh, she was the perfect martial artist. She was small. She was tough. She was hardcore. She had been studying karate since she was seven years old. All she ever wanted her entire life was to be a martial artist and have her own dojo and run her own martial arts school. And, you know, there I was. All I ever wanted to do was to be a princess (laughs) and to someday have my own ballet studio and maybe with a yarn shop, you know, attached to it. But uh, it's like, so we obviously did not get along. We only had to take one class together and it wasn't pretty. (laughs) And it was right after that, that she left the dojo because she went to college. Four years later, she comes back and she's like, oh my God, you're still here and you're a blue belt. So eventually we became great friends and wonderful training partners. So we would help each other. And she was always just a few belt levels below me, but she was a great training partner and a great, what we call uke, which means she would be my attacker for the test. Okay. Three hours and 10 minutes into the test, I broke her foot. Oh. (laughs) Well, let's put it to you this way. I didn't break it. The technique broke it. Right. But, you know, after three hours and 10 minutes, I was exhausted. I was sweating like, you know, a racehorse. I just wanted, I'm looking at these three guys and I'm going, Mo, Larry, Shep, Mo, Larry, (laughs) Shep, you know, and I wanted to run up there and knock their little heads together. And, you know, finally I did this one throw and one of the guys said, okay, Cheryl, now I want you to, you know, do this and put your shoulder here and blah, blah. So they gave me a correction. I'm like, fine, you know, okay. So I did it. And as soon as I did it, I mean, I didn't know. I took corrections that I was that cooperative. But when I did it, 
she flew through the air. She did a couple of rotations and she landed really hard on the mat. And this woman, this girl had great break falls. Right. And it was like, damn, that was really good. And I stepped back and I did my, you know, Kamai, my posture. Yeah. And I looked and she's rolling around on the floor. And her face was this weird shade of green. Oh, boy. And tears were rolling down her face. And it's like, this is not her style. She's a tough cookie. And I just went running up to her going, oh, my God, are you okay? Because obviously she was not. And she's nodding her head like, yes. And, of course, um, Sensei said, Cheryl, Gamon, which is composure. And I'm like, screw Gamon. You know, she's really hurt. And she's trying to get up. And she's like, I'm okay. I'm okay. And Sensei said, Vanessa, do you think you can continue? And she's nodding her head. She still couldn't speak. You know, she couldn't talk. Yeah. And I said, she can't. We got to stop. She cannot go on. And he said, Vanessa. And she said, I can go on. So she went for another 20 minutes. Holy crow. And she called me the next morning and said, my toe is broken. And basically, it really wasn't, you know, her toe. Technically, it was her foot, but I didn't oh, think geez. it was my my point to, you know, to point yeah. that out to her. Uh, but yeah, so she had broken her foot and she kept going for another 20 minutes. And I said to Sensei, I says, you know, why don't you give her a black belt too? Because she earns it. She deserves it after yeah. going through all of that. So the... um the buzz of getting my first black belt was dampened just a little bit by that. <laughs> just a wee bit. Just a wee bit. But, you know, the next class was coming in because we had been there so long. So the kids class were coming in with all of the parents and they saw me standing there with that belt. So got a lot of accolades, got a lot of attention. <laughs> and it was very, very nice. I have to admit, I I was in shock for yeah. probably a couple of weeks. And even now when I tie that black belt on, because I went through two more black belt tests after that, right. I still go, oh, my God, <laughs> I, I can't believe I did this. <laughs> well, kudos to you for for sticking it out and for doing it. I think it's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I kind of, I like to think that I'm the canary in the coal mine. I'll put myself out there. If I survive, anybody can. (laughs) I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Cheryl, what has been the greatest lesson or most valuable takeaway for you through your martial arts training that you now apply to your everyday life that you didn't have before starting your martial arts journey? There's always a way. So I want the listeners to write this down. (laughs) There is always a way. You might not see it at first, but it's there. So just don't give up no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter what problem you're facing, what challenge, even something very simple like how am I going to throw this person over my shoulder without hurting them <laughs> or me, you know, no matter what it is that you're facing, there is always a way around it, through it. Um, there's always a solution. So just never give up and realize that there's always a way. I love it. Now, as mentioned, you are a dancer. And once again, this is something that you decided to pursue a little bit later in life. What was the inspiration behind entering into the world of dancing? And can you speak a little bit about that journey? 
Sure. Uh, again, <laughs> I did not go willingly. Um, <laughs> I see a theme here, Cheryl. <laughs> don't you? Isn't that amazing? You know, I get dragged into everything saying no, no, no. And then, you know, hey, it works out okay. So and you I think crush I, it. <laughs> I do. I do crush it. So basically when I was in college and of course, you know, you're, you got the freshman 15 packing on and all that kind of stuff. And I think it was probably my sophomore year that one of my cousins who was on campus with me started taking ballet classes. It was a small uh, little town in central Pennsylvania. Actually, it was the town that Jimmy Stewart, the actor, is from. Oh, Indi yes. Yeah, Indiana, PA. Okay. So um, she started taking ballet class, and she kept saying, you know, you need to come and take ballet with me. And I thought, oh, God, I think ballet as an adult sounds like something that is really horrible. And, you know, <laughs> I have no desire to do that. Well, one day she shows up. She kept you know, come on, come on, come on. One Saturday morning, she shows up at my dorm with an extra leotard and some ballet slippers and said, you're coming with me. And it's like, okay. <laughs> so I did. And I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with it. So, you know, like once or twice a week, I would walk across campus into the little town, take ballet class, walk back. And not only was I loving the fact that I was, you know, the music was beautiful. I was learning ballet, um, which I had taken ballet at as a four-year-old, but you know, that really doesn't count. Right. And I was with people who were sharing the same passion I, I was, you know, experiencing and I was getting back into some sort of shape. So after that, um, two years after my second year in college, my third year, we actually had to go down to Pittsburgh, um, to a teaching hospital for the rest of my respiratory therapy training. And I found a ballet studio there. And so basically I was 19, 19 or 20 wow. when I started dancing. And that is incredibly old. Most, <laughs> most girls stop dancing like about 19 or 20. And that's when I started, but I found a whole community of other adults. And I, I still, as a matter of fact, I'm going to a ballet class this Saturday. So I'm, I still do dance, not as much as I did um, before, just because I'm so busy with um, my martial arts and another dance form that I'm practicing. Right. Um, but, you know, it's been a huge part of my life. I've danced. I've done ballet for over 40 years, more than half my life. Wow. And they stop typically at 19 or 20? Oh, yeah. By that time, they've had enough of it. Um, you know, if you're not a professional and yeah. it's really hard to become a professional. At that point, you have sacrificed so much into trying to become a professional that you want to go out and get drunk with your friends. You know, you want to eat pizza every now and again. Yeah. You know, it's those type of things. You want to experience being, you know, a, a, a teenager or, you know, a young adult. And a lot of times um, women who quit sometimes will then come back to it later in life. Right. Now, I've heard, though, that the world of ballet, I mean, I don't I'm. I'm sure it's probably changed a little bit now, but before it was, there was a lot of um, eating disorders and things like that, that the, that the girls who were in ballet went through and you've got to keep this specific weight and figure and all of these things. Is that as rampant as it was, let's say in the seventies or eighties, or even when you like, has it changed from when you first started to how it is now? Definitely has changed, but okay. there still is an issue. Um, but I think that now, um, you know, we're more focused on healthy bodies rather right. than, but, but if you really want to become a professional, you really do have a certain size and a certain shape and a certain, um, 
look that you have to have to fit into a ballet company, depending right. on the company. Um, in modern dance, it's a little bit more, um, I don't want to say lenient, but it's a little uh -huh. bit more, let's say realistic. Right. You know, but you know, you don't want to be a certain size putting on point shoes. I mean, that's a lot of weight then into your feet and into your body. So, you know, there's that aspect of it as well. But, you know, when I first started dancing and, you know, moved to Denver and started to take classes in studios that did have a lot of professional dancers there, or maybe had a, you know, little company in it, you could see, I mean, I watched several young girls, teenagers just disappear literally wow. and, and figuratively, yeah. um, you know, until they, you know, pulled out a ballet class and into, into programs and we never saw them again. It's like, it's just, it's not healthy. I mean, no. No. wow. Well, at least there has been a bit of a shift, which is good. Yeah, there really has been. And there's a lot more focus on, you know, healthy eating and feeding your body and nutrition. Of course, there are still one or two of those girls that'll slip through the cracks thinking that, yeah. you know, if I can get this skinny, then people will look at me and I'll get my teacher's attention. And it does kind of like a lot of times if you do lose weight, you know, you get so much positive attention and, oh, look Jeez. at you, you've lost weight, you know, and even, you know, when I just started shriveling away after I was traumatized, you know, at first it was like, oh, wow, you look really good. You look really good. And then it was like, oh, you must be sick. And like I said, all of the recovering um, anorexics were following me all over the place. And it was just crazy. Wow. Now, you are a physical therapist, and I know through previous conversation with you that that's where you started out your career is in physical therapy. Are you still doing that work? And what inspired you to get started in that world? And I believe you took a break from it for a while. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, certainly. Um, actually, physical therapy was my second career. Oh, okay. My first career was as a respiratory therapist. Right. So I did that for 17 years. And why I decided to go back to school and get my master's in physical therapy was because, you know, I, I guess I was experiencing like major burnout um, because 17 years of watching people, you know, quite honestly die. Um, yeah. I was a critical care specialist and, you know, you're constantly on, you know, one minute, everything's nice and calm. The next minute, all hell's breaking loose. You know, you've got patients coring and, you know, going bad. It's, it was just, I needed, I needed a, a change and I wanted um, to pursue higher education. I wanted a master's in something. And so physical therapy just seemed to be the right fit for me being a dancer, I had been a chronic pain patient when I was in my mid thirties. That's another long story. And I thought, you know, maybe I could help other people, you know, avoid getting into pain like I did and especially dancers work with them. So I went into, you know, did all the prerequisites. Getting into PT school is not easy. Right. So I did get into PT school and, and when I got into school and I started doing it, it was like, I don't like it. Wow. I know. And then when I graduated, the job market for PTs at the time, especially in Denver, were really, really, it was a poor, poor job market. And so in for two and a half years of struggling in that market where, you know, you keep getting your hours cut and the pay wasn't as good as it, you know, used to be, it was just so frustrating. And then one day I realized, oh my gosh, I could just go out on my own because um, Pilates was just starting to be popular then. Yeah. 
I had been studying Pilates myself since 1983. So before people even knew what the heck it was. And after I graduated PT school, I actually went through two professional um, Pilates trainings. So it's like, wait a minute, you know, there are idiots out there teaching Pilates. (laughs) I've got a dance background. I've got a master's in PT. You know, I've gone through these two trainings. So I actually opened up my own practice specializing in Pilates-based rehab and conditioning. And I eventually added another movement modality called Feldenkrais, um, which is a highly sophisticated form of neuromuscular re-education. And so basically I was not fixing people I was teaching my clients how to fix themselves. So I was empowering them to be able to find their own path to, you know, health and healing through some of the techniques that I learned along the way. Okay. Now, do you still practice physical therapy? Like, are you still practicing? Well, I closed my physical office in May of 2017, and then I relaunched it online about a year ago. And so I do work with clients online, one-on-one. I do teach uh, workshops uh, in person here in Denver, and I also do teach a weekly somatic movement class here in town as well. Do you incorporate any of the philosophies and mindsets or principles that you learn in martial arts into your physical therapy when working with your clients? Absolutely. And not only just with the clients, even, you know, when I have like either a slump or I've got a problem or it's like, you know, what's happening in my business that isn't working for me right now. Yeah. I use those same principles and then I'm able to figure it out and go, aha, and (laughs) (laughs) make an adjustment, which is what we do all the time in martial arts in our training. And then, you know, you find that, that path. I love it. You're also an award-winning best-selling author. Can you talk a little bit about the book and what it's all about, the title, how the opportunity came up for you to write the book, and what was the experience like for you? Absolutely. Well, my first book um, was published in June of 2016. The title is Forever Fit and Flexible. Mm-hmm. feeling fabulous at 50 and beyond. So there are a lot of F's in there. I know that. <laughs> um, so it's basically um, all of the, it's about, you know, of course, fitness over 50, but it's not about going to the gym three times a week and lifting all these heavy weights. It's about moving smarter, not harder. So in the book, you know, I explain a lot of, um, you know, the philosophy, the mindset, the awareness, the key and the foundation to somatic movement and how to be able to move um, thoughtfully yeah, and being able to incorporate like functional movement, the movements that you're doing every single day and make them um, help with uh, improve your strength, your muscle tone, your flexibility. It's very practical. It's about being gentle with yourself and it's about busting the myths of aging and okay. punching t- punching father time in the face <laughs> <laughs> and telling the naysayers to shut up and mind their own business. And it's also based on the movement art. So it integrates the science of physical therapy with the art of movement. And the four movement arts that I really highlight are Pilates, Feldenkrais, dance, and martial arts. So that's the first book. Yep. And the second book was actually um, published just this past March. Congratulations. And- Thank you. That one was a tough one. Was it? Yes. So the title is The Reluctant Ninja. (laughs) How a Middle-Aged Princess Became a Warrior Queen. 
I love the title. Thank you. So <laughs> that one's more of a memoir about, you know, my journey into the strange new world of men and martial arts. And it's actually a story of from tragedy to triumph and how a broken down, you know, beaten down, traumatized and terrified middle-aged lady ended up finding her voice, standing her ground, finding her inner strength, that warrior spirit, and taking her power back. So basically, it's my journey. I love it. That is incredibly powerful. Thank you. I already It already has won an award. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. I was really thrilled. <laughs> I'm sure you were. <laughs> That's phenomenal. I love it. Thanks. How has it been received from your friends and, and all of that? Oh, geez. You know what, Brad? It's um, Thank you for mentioning that because I, I didn't want anybody who knew me to read it. Oh, <laughs> I was fine with strangers or people who didn't know me, but you could imagine when I walked into the dojo one day and there was Sensei sitting there with a copy of my book. <laughs> I about pooped my pants. I mean, I was like, because I didn't change some of the names and I use his name, but you know, in some ways it was very complimentary. And in some ways it wasn't because as you can imagine a relationship like that over the course of, you know, well, 20 years, because I'm still training can be pretty volatile sometimes at times. And, And so it, but it has been incredibly well received. And there's another young man in the dojo who, you know, I just meant like about a year ago and he was reading it. And I said, Oh God, do you (laughs) think less of me now? And he said, no, I think more of you. Wow. So, and it's gotten some great reviews and even people that I know, um, like in the world of Feldenkrais, which is another little sub community. Right. And martial arts, the principles of martial arts is woven all through the Feldenkrais method. And I had several of them contact me and just go, wow. Incredible. Have you had trauma survivors reach out? You know, I had not, not specifically. I have had several people kind of say, yeah, I understand. Oh yeah. There was one woman actually um, in a book event that I did over the holidays, it was a Christmas festival up in the mountains. And I mean, she was listening to the story. She read the back of the book. And I mean, I mean, she was completely captivated and she was with her daughter-in-law and her granddaughter. So she bought a copy of the book and after the daughter and the, or the daughter-in-law and the granddaughter moved away, she came up very close to me. Yeah. And she said, you know, uh, this just breaks my heart. She said, when I was 14, so now this woman is my age, mid sixties, maybe she's 70. She says, when I was 14, my father died. And I said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And she said, and the next door neighbor nine months later molested me. Oh, Jesus. And it's like, I don't know what the correlation was, maybe because there wasn't a father, there wasn't a protector in the house, you know, to protect this, this young girl. And I was just, I looked at her and I said, I'm so, so sorry. And she said, and he was my bus driver. Oh, jeez. So she said twice a day, I had to look at him. And I mean, it just, there are so many stories like that out there. Yeah. And so many 
women and men because guess what? Boys get molested too and yep. even grown men do. Yep. There are so many stories out there and it really breaks my heart because a lot of people are living with the shame. And I think that putting my story out there, it helped me get rid of some of the shame that I still have from it. Yeah. Um, but, oh, and just so the audience knows, spoiler alert, if you do get the book, <laughs> you'll hear more about this in the book. But my trauma was actually in a medical office. Oh, jeez. So wow. it can happen anywhere. And I was 44 years old, pretty savvy young woman, young woman, 44, yeah. um, pretty savvy, obviously a medical professional. And if it could happen to me, it could happen to anybody and everybody. And I know that it does. Yeah. So I just think that it's really important that we do share those stories to help let survivors know that number one, they're not alone and to help empower other people how to avoid becoming a victim or a target. Yeah. Talking about it helps for sure. It's, it's how things start to change is by talking about them and getting the word out there about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cheryl, what do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped <laughs> you become successful? Well, I've already mentioned it a few times and <laughs> I would have to say it's my incomparable stubbornness. <laughs> Speaking of success, how do you define that word? What does the word success mean to you? Waking up every single morning and looking forward to the day. Beautiful. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before you learned it? And what was your life like after you learned it? This is going to sound really crazy. Um, the power of no. I learned how to say no when I was 50 years old. And it was a beautiful moment. And I remember exactly where I was, exactly how it happened, exactly what I was wearing. And it was like, holy shit. <laughs> and that's when it began to change. Because it's prior to that, I, you know, I'm sure I did not have very good boundaries and people could run over me because I was always ready to help somebody. Yeah. It's a huge two-letter word. I love it's it. It's massive, you know, mm -hmm. and it is, there is such power in that. You know, what I find funny too is that when people say no, I find they, it, it's like they, they have to justify why they're saying no. Mm. There has to be a reason. It's never just no. Mm -hmm. And people feel, because people feel like they have to explain why they're saying no. And that's the worst thing you could do because that then opens up the the subject up for more discussion yeah and no you Just have to have that period at the end of it <laughs> there you go <laughs> you could also say no thank you yeah but that's it yeah cheryl what do you feel most grateful for in your life i am grateful for the scars i'm grateful for the hits i'm grateful for all the crap i've gone through because there has been a lot of it but look at me now. And look at you now. You're a badass ninja. <laughs> <laughs> I love being able to say that. <laughs> I know you do. It's just great. I love hearing it. <laughs> Who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why? You know, I would have to say my dad. 
You know, I've had a lot of very influential and positive people in my life. I've had a lot of the opposite as well. Yeah. But just as a role model, and I really didn't see it before because I I look so much like my mother. I, you know, am stubborn like my mother. Um, (laughs) You know, I like, you know, fluffy things like my mother did and feminine things. And my father and I didn't always get along that well. Um, and that's why it's even more of a shock to realize, oh my God, I am more like my dad than I am like my mother. And I think, um, through example that he was also, he was a martial artist. Oh, okay. Um, but that's not why, I mean, you know, he was an immigrant from Czechoslovakia, um, came over with my grandmother on the last ship out of Calais. Uh, the boat left on December 29th, 1939, last ship out before they closed the port. Uh, he was 12 years old. Um, my grandfather was already here in the United States. They'd been separated for a while because that's how it happened back then. Yeah, yeah. And at 12 years old, you know, they put him in a third grade class because they thought he was stupid because he couldn't speak English. And uh, he learned English right away. He is a very bright man, joined the Navy um, five years later, you know, uh, yeah. came back, uh, married my mother, built her a beautiful stone house, um, you know, was an amazing man. He did a lot of, if I had five daughters, put us all through college. Holy uh, shit. Yeah, to this day, we're still surprised that he lived as long as he did. <laughs> Being in a house with six women. Can you yeah. imagine? Mm-hmm. I'm in a house with three. So, yeah, I have some idea. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? My First of all, what my father would call you, mm-hmm. an amateur, because you only had three. <laughs> but I'm going to give you, I'm going to leave you with a great gift. Okay. Um, something that my father used to say. And, you know, we would always roll our eyes because he would say it to everybody. So if you really want to embarrass the women in your life that you live with, what my father would always say when you know people find out, wow, five daughters, you know, what's it like to live with six women in the house? And he would say, the toilet seat is never cold. (laughs) Very true. So there you go, Brad. That's my dad's gift to you. Thank you. You're welcome. I love it. (laughs) Cheryl, can you tell me about a moment when a person's kindness made a difference in your life? Oh, yeah. That goes back to when I was so terribly traumatized. And, you know, I mean, the world was just treating me like it's personal toilet. Yeah. And I had gone to a new hairdresser. And I think it was probably maybe the second time I had seen him. So I really didn't know this guy that well. And 20 some years later, you know, I still go to him. Really huge man and very, you know, snarky and snotty and, you know, my kind of guy. Yeah. And, you know, toward at the end of the appointment, you know, like I think I had the color in the hair and it was setting and he came up to me and he pulled up a chair and he says, okay, I need to talk to you about some of your products. We need to try some new things. We need to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you're going through right now, but it's okay. (laughs) You're going to be, it'll be all right. You're going to get better. And I just looked at him and I said, oh, my God, how did you know? Because, you know, I I pride myself on being a very good little actress. And he said, 
honey, I've been doing this for 10 years. I know everything. (laughs) And he said, and I could see it in your hair. So apparently (laughs) all the stress was coming out in my hair. All right. And I'm thinking, and then, and then he kind of, he gave me like a, a shoulder massage and a scalp massage. And it was like, somebody was nice to me. I mean, that moment of being seen and heard. Yeah. I mean, and it was just, I was so shocked. I cried the whole way home. Wow. I know. And then a powerful moment. It was a very powerful moment. And then I realized, wait a minute, if he can see the damage that it's doing to my hair externally, what's happening inside of my body and the stress that it's taking, the toll that it's taking on my body. So I ended up finding a naturopath and went to a naturopath to help build myself back up again. What a pivotal moment. Yeah. And you know, I mention him in the book. Yeah. And I tell that story in the book and I use his real name. His name yeah. is Eric. And when I told him after the book, uh, you know, went out, and I mean, I had a few really bad weeks after the book was published because I thought, oh my God, everybody knows my story. They have access to my story. I feel like I had just ripped off all my clothes Yeah, and was walking down downtown Denver naked because that's what it felt like. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. But eventually, you know, I got over it, but I was telling him, I says, as a matter of fact, I mentioned you in the book. And he goes, (laughs) you did? And I says, yeah. I says, it was something you did for me. You were very nice to me. He goes, I was. (laughs) So he was just shocked that he was nice. And I said, yes, Eric, but I don't think he's ever read it. So he doesn't know the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that story. That's beautiful. Thank you. Cheryl, what does the word empowerment mean to you? It means knowing yourself better than you ever did before and taking action with your best interests in mind. And that just came off the top of my head because I never really thought about it before. Well, that's a great definition. I love it. Mm. Okay. We're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be two, three, four word answer type thing. Okay. Okie dokie. If you came with a warning label, what would yours say? Slow down and proceed with caution. (laughs) If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? The power of no. How would you describe yourself in one word? I don't know if I can say it. (laughs) Yes, you can. Bitch. (laughs) All right. You weren't expecting that. No, not at all. (laughs) What is one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Love. What is your biggest fear? Becoming complacent. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? My humor. And that concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. (laughs) What is something surprising you've learned about yourself in the last year? How strong and smart I really am. That's a powerful realization. Mm. Because we we always undervalue ourselves. We do. I know. And we need to stop doing that. We do. What is one lesson that your career has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? The art of compassion. What would you say is the most important 
lesson you've learned in business? Persistence. (laughs) (laughs) In the last two years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Mm. Flexibility. Not flexibility in body, flexibility in times of difficulty, for example, the, the pandemic and yeah. Yeah. Okay. Having your life interrupted. Yeah. Being able to, to shift and shift gears on a dime. Yeah. The power to pivot. Yeah. What do you see as your greatest accomplishment? Ah, <sighs> this is going to sound ridiculous, but I think One of the things that I am most proud of is that I ran a rescue for seven years. I was the head, or I ran, I was probably the only one. I was the Colorado Italian Greyhound Rescue. Wow. And in that time of seven years, now we're talking Italian Greyhounds, so they're the little ones, not the retired racers. Um, Darling little dogs, but man, are they a handful. (laughs) And in that seven-year time, I rescued at least 100 dogs and placed them into happy homes. A hundred. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. As time went on, I did have a few people helping like with foster and stuff. But yeah, over that time period, my husband and I uh, rescued at least 100 dogs. That's an incredibly selfless accomplishment. There's a special place in heaven for us, and I do hope it's with the dogs. <laughs> dogs are truly, truly incredible animals. Oh, I love them so much. Me too. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be and why? Mm, dead or alive? Do they have to be alive? No. Oh, Okay. Well, my grandmother. Okay. Yep. Okay. Actually, I'd like to be able to have long conversations with both of them. I mean, I knew them both very well. Right. And um, neither one of them were very good at English. I mean, they spoke it. Yeah. Um, but heavy Slavic accents because, of course, my grandmother was from Czechoslovakia and the other one was from Yugoslavia. But okay. um, there are things about them that I do know. You know, but what I really would love is the opportunity to say, well, how did you respond to that? How did you feel about that? You know, how, because I am working on a family um, history book, so. Awesome. (laughs) If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Don't worry. It'll work out. And lastly, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, your corner of the world, your tribe, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? Hmm. Wow, you stumped me there. Let me think. It would be, <laughs> yeah. first I'd say, you know what? Don't don't grieve for me. You can miss me, but don't grieve for me. Um, you know, I had a great life. I know it sometimes doesn't seem like it, but, you know, it's been a great ride. Um I wished I hadn't taken myself so seriously when I was younger, but you know what? I did it my way and it turned out just fine. And yours can turn out fine too. 
Beautiful. Cheryl, thank you so very much for being here with me today and for making the time and taking the time to share your journey and your story with me. It has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure, a laugh. You are such an incredible inspiration. Thank you for doing all the beautiful work that you're doing and, and putting yourself out there in the way you have. I think it is such an incredibly important thing that you're doing and things that you're doing. It's, it's, you're an inspiration to so many, I'm sure. And just thank you for making and taking the time to be here with me today. Oh, thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Sometimes, you know, it's like, who, who's he talking about? But I really do appreciate it. That's so kind. Um, and it's been so much fun. I just really enjoy, you know, talking to you, man, you, you are a great interviewer. This is just a wonderful opportunity for me. And, you know, what a great show that you have. Thank you, Cheryl. It's I'm truly honored to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. So thank you for being part of that and for sharing your story. Mm. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I hope it inspires people to understand that they can recover from anything and that there really, really, truly is an incredible amount of inner strength and warrior spirit in each and every one of us. And just go out and look for it because it's there. Well, you are the example right there. That's well, thank it. you. Thanks. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Cheryl Ilove. She is an author, a speaker, a physical therapist, a dancer, and of course, we have to mention it again, a fucking ninja. <laughs> I still can't believe I got to interview a ninja. This is one of the most incredible interviews ever. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I appreciate you. I hope you have an amazing rest of the day. Why, thank you. I will. I'm going to the dojo to smack some guys around. <laughs> and so I'll be thinking about you the whole time and hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. And remember what my father would say, your toilet seat is always warm. <laughs> have a great day, Cheryl. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca, follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast, and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.